Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. The Jay Garvin Show Home and Mortgage Talk, Saturdays at 8 a.m., Sundays at 11 a.m., here on KRDO News Radio 105.5 FM, 1240 a.m., and 92.5 FM. Now, here's your host, Jay Garvin. This segment is brought to you by Empire Title, Bill McAfee, your best of the best Colorado Springs gold winner. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Well, Merry Christmas to everybody. I am Jay Garvins, and you've uh, tuned in to the Jay Garvin Show, which is traditionally called Home and Mortgage Talk. But during the holidays and on other select weeks and weekends during the year, I love to stray from the intense, humoristic conversation of Home and Mortgage Talk. If you're hearing my voice for the very first time, I want to be the first one to say Merry Christmas Eve on this eve. Here we are, Saturday, Christmas Eve, 2022, 8 a.m. Whether you turned the dial to KRDO for Dave Ramsey or Sean Hannity or another tremendous host or news hour, I am Jay and I'm your friend. My number is 719-330-1457. I'm a licensed loan originator, and I'd love to help you with your next purchase or refinance transaction, especially if you're a lover of investment properties. It's a great time to buy, but that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. Every year, for 10 years now, I have had a tradition, as I have in my hands, to, in one form or another, share Christmas stories with you. I have read childhood stories like Silent Night or the Variety with Bill McAfee, one of my partners. I've done the same with Justin Hermes. But today, on Christmas Eve, or if you're listening on Sunday, Christmas Day, I'm going to be sharing not one, but two Christmas stories that are very near and dear to my heart. One is amazing, out of the James Dobson family Christian book. I've been doing that for over five years. But I have a story here that I have never, ever done before, and I would love to share it with you. I am a patriot. We are a patriotic station. We have a patriotic region in Pikes Peak region. I tell people we are the last red floating raft in a very blue ocean of Denver and Colorado. But our history, not only in Jesus Christ and celebrating his birth, but of this great country, is near and dear to my heart. And I looked and found this amazing story that I want to share with you. It is titled, Victory or Death, America's First Christmas. On Christmas Eve, General George Washington sat in his tent on the banks of the Delaware River, methodically writing the same three words over and over on small pieces of paper. Victory or death. Victory or death. He had deceived a daring plan, crossing the ice-choked Delaware River and mounting a surprise attack on the Hessian garrison at Trenton on not just any day, but on Christmas Day, writing these messages on Christmas Eve, 1776. Knowing the assault could not succeed if word of this plan reached the enemy, he detailed a Virginia brigade to serve as sentries around the patriotic camp. The general himself selected the password for that night 
and that was what he was writing on scraps of paper for distribution in his unit and to their commanders. Victory or death, victory or death. While the Surgeon General of the Continental Army was visiting Washington, one of the slips had fallen on the floor, and he stated, I was struck with the inscription on it, the physician wrote. It was victory or death. See, it was December of 1776. It was one of the darkest times in America. Hyperinflation had gripped the economy. Washington's army lost one battle after another. The mood of the country changed from optimism to defeat. Making matters worse, the enlistments for the Continental Army expired that month in December or at latest January 1st of 1777. Thomas Paine epically captured the days leading up to Christmas of 1776 in the American crisis. These are times that try men's soul, Payne wrote. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of all men and all women. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, their more glorious the triumph. Washington's army had lost one battle after another. The economy had tanked, and the paper money the United States printed seemed worthless. Americans were abandoning the cause in droves. During the fall of 1776, the British issued an amnesty proclamation that offered a pardon and protection to any rebels who signed an oath of loyalty to the king within 60 days. Thousands of Americans, including several members of Congress, clamored to sign the oath. One disgusted American patriot recalled, To the disgrace of the country and human nature, great numbers flocked to confess their political sins to the representative of the majesty. Kiss the ring and obtain a pardon. It was observed that these consisted of very rich and very poor in their signings, while the middle class held their constancy. Most Americans could read, and the pamphlet immediately raised the morale of both the military and the patriotic civilians. The looming prospect of disaster seemed to spur Americans into action. For some even believed that such a crisis was necessary to give people the proper motivation to fight. Our republic cannot exist long in prosperity, Dr. Benjamin Rush later wrote in a letter to John Adams, we require adversity to appear to possess the most of the rebellion spirit. When most depressed, the crisis had a direct positive effect that gave steeled resolve. That December 246 years ago, folks, marked a period where Americans from all stripes came together to alter the course of history in a great counteroffense when? On Christmas night. Sitting here on Christmas Eve was George Washington readying his troops. Contrary to the myth perpetuated by many children's books, the Hessians in Trenton were neither drunk nor idle. Their experienced commander, Colonel Johann Rawl, a hero of White Plains' Shatterton's Hill and the break forth at Fort Washington, kept his men in constant readiness and on patrol for the defense of the British Empire. A series of raids by local militia on the prior days 
had put them on edge, and the men slept dressed and armed. Rawl realized that the precautious nature of Trenton outposts frequently demanded reinforcements to no avail at all. Intelligence that was combined from the raids put Rawl and his men in a perpetual state of alert and began to fray their nerves. Washington settled on a complicated plan to envelop Rawls' garrison, the main force which, a force which included elite troops from Maryland and crossed the McConney's Ferry. The bottom line is, is the unfathomable John Glover and his Marblehead Mariners led the assault and the river crossing on the Delaware that Christmas Eve. Asked if the plan was doable, Glover confidently reassured Washington not to be troubled about this, as the boys can manage it, he stated. In December of 1776, Washington turned to the only group of men he knew that had the strength and the skill to deliver the army to Trenton. The Marblehead men miraculously transported Washington and the bulk of his army across the Delaware in the heart, folks, of a raging storm. He ordered two additional groups of American troops to cross the river below Trenton to cut off the enemy's retreat behind Washington. These groups, not guided by the Marbleheaders, found the icy river impassable. But the courage and the nautical talent of the indispensables, the Marbleheads, engaged the battle that changed the course of the Revolutionary War, all on Christmas of 1776. When the main body reached the crossing point, as the sun was setting on Christmas night, the water began to freeze near the shore, and even sections in the center of the river were covered in ice. Yet the men followed Washington. One participant recalled, Our general halted his army, and raising on his stirrups, made such an animated speech that we forgot the cold, the hunger and the toil under which we were ready to sink, and each man seemed only to be anxious for the onset. The snow and the slush ice-covered cold river was before them, yet when our commander, Brave, gave the word and turned his horse's head across the stream, no one complained or held back, but all plunged and were excited that they should first and next touch the shore of Jersey after our beloved commander. The army was in pitiful condition. As one American officer remembered, it would be a terrible night for the soldiers who have no shoes. Some had tied old rags on their feet. Others were actually barefoot in the snow. But I have not heard one man complain. By 11 a.m., a massive storm pelted the men with snow, and biting wind as they crossed the Delaware in Durham boats for the troops, many of whom could not swim. Falling over the side would likely have meant death in the icy currents. Despite the risk of frostbite, hypothermia, infallible Continental Army pressed on. Washington was out in front leading operation. I've never seen Washington so determined as he was now. He stands on the bank of the river, wrapped in his cloak, superintending the landing of the troops. 
He was calm and collected, but very determined. The storm cut like a knife. Miraculously, the Americans did not lose a single soldier in that initial crossing. However, the storm had put them far behind their original timetable. Washington had planned to have everyone over the river by midnight, but his army wasn't reassembled on the far side of the Delaware until nearly four in the morning. Not knowing that the two other groups did not make it across the river, Washington ordered his exhausted, shivering men to proceed on a nine-mile march to Trenton. Now, folks, I'm going to break the story here, but that's the beginning of a miraculous Christmas of patriots making the first Christmas push to pull America together. So stay tuned. After these messages, I will continue my story about victory or death, America's first Christmas and Washington's crossing of the Delaware. You're listening to The Jay Garvin Show. Santa Claus is coming to town. Ho, ho, ho. The Jay Garvin Show Home and Mortgage Talk, Saturdays at 8 a.m., Sundays at 11 a.m., here on KRDO News Radio 105.5 FM, 1240 a.m., and 92.5 FM. We're back with your home mortgage Jedi, Jay Garvin's. This segment is brought to you by Arrow Moving and Storage. Welcome back to the Jay Garvin Show, where I am sharing two amazing Christmas stories. This is the first patriotic Christmas story, as opposed to a traditional story, that I've ever shared. And I started it in the first segment, and it's called Victory or Death, America's First Christmas, George Washington and the Continental Army Crossing the Delaware. Though snow and sleet driven nearly horizontal with punishing winds, the men and horses drudged through drifts and slides across icy roads, and as always, the Americans were poorly equipped. The Patriots had very little clothing. Many of the poor soldiers are actually barefoot and ill-clad, wrote one of the officers on the scene. This is after they had crossed the Delaware River. Then they were marching nine miles to the battle at 4 a.m. Their routes were easily traced as there was little snow on the ground, another man recalled, which was not tinged here without blood from the feet of the man who wore broken shoes. Our army was destitute of shoes and clothing. It was snowy at this time, and the night was unusually stormy. Several of our men froze to death on the march. Not wanting to lose more troops, Washington shouted and encouraged the men, Soldiers, keep by your officers. For God's sake, keep by your officers. Throughout the night, the commander-in-chief remained determined. Adversity brought forth 
his best qualities. Press on, press on, boys, Washington shouted. As he rode up and down the line, Americans arrived at the outskirts of Trenton just before 8 o'clock in the morning. Thanks to the reduced visibility from the storm, they approached within 200 yards of the sentries and sounded their cry, Der Fiend, Herat, Der Fiend, Herat, which means the enemy, turn out, turn out. Shots were fired and the Americans charged some yelling, these are the kinds that try men's souls. As their battle cry, the famous words penned by Thomas Paine, the Hessians who were disorganized in the British defense fell back from the onslaught that seemed to come from all around them. Small groups clashed throughout the city in the house-to-house -house fighting in the early morning hours. Soon smoke and cannons and muskets filled the streets and combined with the continuing storm added to the confusion and the lack of visibility. This is how our first Christmas day as a country was spent. Very quickly after entering Trenton, Washington's army captured several Haitian artillery pieces. In the thick of the fighting, Rawl, the Hessian commander, ordered his men to retake the guns because their loss was considered a dishonor to the regiment. With kettle drums beating, Rawl shouted, All who are my grenadiers, forward, forward! At this point, Americans had infiltrated the entire city on Christmas Day. The marksmen took up secure positions in houses behind the fences and were quick to pick off the enemy fighters. American artillery commanded by Bostonian Colonel Henry Knox pummeled the oncoming Hessians. Knox later wrote, Here succeeded a scene of war, of which I had often conceived but never saw before. At that moment, two bullets struck their commander, Rawl, right in his side, and he was mortally wounded. He reeled in the saddle, one man said. His men attempted to evade the patriotic forces, but the Americans pursued. On horseback, Washington led the attack, urging the Marylanders and his other troops forward, shouting, March on, my brave fellow, follow me. Hit by three sides, the Hessians were now leaderless, lowering their guns and their flags around 9 a.m. The word of the surrender would soon spread to the Continental forces throughout Trenton. A huge shout shook the town as the Triumph and Americans threw their hats in the air and cheered in victory. In short order, they found 40 hogsheads of rum and immediately cracked them open. By the time Washington, General Washington, had found out about the alcohol and ordered the casks destroyed, the soldiers had drank too freely to admit from any discipline or defense. Washington had intended to continue his push forward and attack Princeton and Brunswick after Trenton, but these plans were further delayed, or better scotched, due to the state of the army. A victorious drunken man rode back across the Delaware after this battle. The blizzard continued to rage, crossing the treacherous waters. This time actually cost the life of three men, and it was noon the next day before all of the patriots and Americans got back to their camp. This is unbelievable. For some, having been awake, marching, crossing the river there and back against enemy elements for more than 50 hours.
The Americans had killed 22 Hessians, severely wounded 84, took 896 prisoners, but more importantly, they had muskets, bayonets, boxes, swords, artillery, everything. The Americans had won a great victory right here on Christmas Day of 1776, but they had little time for rest. Washington needed to capitalize on the victory at Trenton by eliminating the other British troops garrisoned in New Jersey. But for what he had in the need of the troops was quickly coming to an end. The enlistment period for the bulk of Washington's men expired on New Year's Day, just a week away, and they had every right to return home, having fulfilled the terms of their enlistment in one of the most treacherous battles of the war. It was left to the Continental Army when Washington pulled them into formation and stood at attention as he mustered the oracle prowess and appealed to the men standing before him, saying, My brave fellows, you have done all I've asked of you and more than I could have reasonably expected. But our country is at stake. Your wives, our houses, and all that we hold dear will ask you for a consent today to stay one month longer. You will render that service to cause of a liberty and to your country, which probably can never be under any other circumstance. So moved by the general's words in such an affectionate manner, men slowly started to step forward from the ranks. More soldiers followed as the majority of the army decided to continue fighting. Many of those who stepped forward would help turn the tide in the coming battles to win us a liberty that we still enjoy today. Now, while the sacrifice was great, listeners, you, many of those volunteers died in battle and also from smallpox and had America's resolve as its strongest as it seems in its darkest hours. See Washington on that Christmas of 1776 cross the river 246 years ago with boats ferrying over 2,400 soldiers, 200 horses, 18 cannons, and the troops marched eight miles down river before battling the Hessians and taking the streets of Trent. So as I look back, it is an amazing tale as the story begins in America. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back after these important messages where I share another heartfelt story with you here on this Christmas Eve called Christmas Lost and Found. You're listening to The Jay Garvin Show. I'm of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow, but have a cup of cheer. The Jay Garvin Show Home and Mortgage Talk, Saturdays at 8 a.m., Sundays at 11 a.m., here on KRDO News Radio 105.5 FM, 1240 a.m., and 92.5 FM. We're back now. Here's Jay Garvin's. Ho, ho, ho! Ho, ho, the mistletoe hung where you can see. Somebody waits for you. Kiss her once for me. Well, Merry Christmas to everybody if you're listening on Christmas Eve. 
on Saturday, welcome, or if you're listening Sunday on Christmas Day, may God bless you on this amazing time recognizing the anniversary of the birth of Jesus. And I traditionally share stories on Christmas. I have another story to share with you, and it's called Christmas Lost and Found. It's out of James Dobson's Family Christmas Books, one of my favorite stories, as my son just came home from college himself. And it starts, a lonely college freshman walked along the streets of Philadelphia on the day before Christmas 1975. Three weeks earlier, his mother had written to break the news. His family could not afford to bring him home for the holidays. His father and business was in trouble, and there was no extra money for travel. That meant William Lambert would be forced to remain at the University of Pennsylvania during the entire Christmas season. The winter break had been the most depressing period of William's life. With the exception of the foreign students who spoke little English, all the guys in his dormitory had left two weeks earlier in a flurry of activity. They talked excitingly about their mom's cooking and their families that waited for them back home. William had watched them all pack and leave, feeling like the most wretched person on earth. His pain had almost become unbearable by the cold morning before Christmas. Not even God knows that I'm alive, he thought to himself. If he cares, why didn't he help me get home for the holidays? The question went unanswered. In depression, William boarded a bus for downtown Philly, hoping to find relief from his terrible loneliness. He pulled his collar around his neck to protect against the bitter wind and walked along a decorated street in Philly. The laughing, happy people reminded him of his friends. At home in Idaho, he thought of his mother's traditional turkey dinner and the family sitting around the Christmas tree. How his heart longed to be with them at that moment. In his wallet, he carried a crisp $50 bill, a present from his parents. He knew they had sacrificed to send it to him. The card had said, buy something special for yourself but nothing sounded appealing. William spent most of the day wandering aimlessly in and out of the stores and somehow was helped by the surrounded nature of the crowds. Then, late in the afternoon, his vision suddenly focused. There was a shop window where an electric train was chugging through a tiny frontier town. In front of the window was a young boy, about nine years old, standing transfixed in front of the glass. It was though he were hypnotized by this train. William remembered his own childhood in Boise. There was a toy store near his house where he had stood and longed for a beautiful Lionel train. He knew his father could not afford such an expensive gift, but he secretly hoped for a miracle that never came. Now, he recognized that same disappointment in the face of the boy before him. The lad walked away, casting one last glance over his shoulder. Why not? William thought to himself. He strolled over to the boy and tapped him on the shoulder. Hi, my name's William, he said. I'm David, said the boy. That's a beautiful train, isn't it? Yeah, said David. It's the best train I've ever seen. How would you like to have that train? He said to his young friend. The boy's eyes widened. Oh, I could never own it, he said. We, we couldn't. I mean, my mom doesn't have very much money. Come on, said William, leading David. Let's go into the store. William knew that his motives might be misunderstood by someone older than David, but he meant no harm to the boy. Indeed, this might have been the most unselfish
childish moment of William's life. Since he couldn't be a child again, he could at least enjoy making another boy's dream come true. The sales clerk approached them and asked if he could help. That train in the window, William said. How much is it? I mean, the whole set. I believe it's about 50 bucks, he answered. Let me check. In a few moments, the clerk returned to the counter. It's 46 95 and worth every penny, he added. That sounded terrific, William said. We'll take it. The sales clerk made his way to the storage room. Wow, said David. Do you really mean it? The train's for me? It's really mine? William gave the boy a pat on the shoulder and smiled. Yeah. Hey, said David. I live just around the corner. Want to come meet my mom? She's a really neat lady. I want her to meet you. After William paid for the train, David said excitedly, Come on, come on, I want to show my mom. William struggled to carry the box and keep track of the boy, that he was running far ahead of him by now. A block away, they came to an old brick building. David ran up the dark staircase and pounded on the door. Mark 201, an apron-clad woman in her 30s, soon appeared. Mom, said David, this man is my friend. He, he bought me a new train. Can he come in, Mom? Huh, please, can he come in? William tried to maneuver the box so she could at least see his head and say hi. I, I hope you don't mind what I've done. I saw David looking at this train, and I could see how much he wanted it. I really would be pleased if you would allow him to accept it. Well, sure, said David's mother. Bring it on in. My name is Pauline Sanders. You'll have to pardon me. I'm not used to having my son bring people home with him. I'll be leaving in a minute, said William. I just wanted to help David carry the box home. No, 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 said Pauline, seeing the kindness in the eyes of the young man. Come on. He warmly reacted to her welcome, and it reminded William of his own mother, who would have responded the same way if he had shown up at the door with a stranger back home. Won't you have a seat, Pauline asked. As William removed his hat and coat, he noticed the humble surroundings. The living room was clean and neat, although simple in appearance. The fire was crackling in the hearth. A small Bible lay on the top of the coffee table. And in the corner stood a small, frail Christmas tree covered with popcorn and red ribbon. He noticed there was hardly any presence underneath. David grabbed William's hand fast. Don't sit down, he said. First, Come see my room. As they made their way down the hallway, Pauline called from the kitchen. Son, did you remember to pick up those apples for me? They're on the counter, Mom, David replied. And then he opened the door to a tiny bedroom. This, this is my room, he said proudly. Wow, very impressive, remarked William. Looking around, two posters hung on the walls and a few model trains were displayed on the dresser. I did those trains. You made those models, asked Williams? Yes answered David, all by myself. William picked one of the trains up, looked at it closely. You did a nice job, he said. Better than I would have done. David beamed with pride as they walked back to the kitchen. As long as you're here, Pauline said, why, why don't you join us for Christmas dinner? It's just David and me, and it'll be good to have a guest with us. She had prepared a bountiful meal of turkey, mashed potatoes, and green beans. It was clearly a sacrificial tribute that had been extracted from her small budget. William smelled the food and said that he would be delighted to stay. Do you mind if I say grace before we eat, asked Pauline? David and I are Christians. Really, said Williams. I'm a new Christian, too. 
I became a believer last month in my InterVarsity meeting, and there's still so much I don't understand. They bowed their heads while Pauline thanked God for the blessing for the birth of his son, Jesus. During the meal, Pauline talked about her late husband, Richard, who had died in Vietnam five years before. She had wanted to leave Philadelphia ever since his death, preferring to live on the West Coast with her family. Someday, she said, we'll be able to move. That's my dream. Why didn't you visit your family this Christmas, asked William, like immediately regretting. Pauline sighed. Well, I wanted to, she said, but I just didn't have the money this year. William explained that he, too, had wanted to go home for Christmas, but financial woes had kept him in Philly as well. Then it must be God's will that you're here tonight, Pauline said. William smiled. It must be, he agreed. After dinner, William and David sat on the floor and began to put the train set together. Pauline served apple dumplings as they talked and they laughed and told stories. Now, this isn't the end, folks. I've got the second half of the story, so don't go anywhere. After these messages, I'm going to continue Christmas Lost and Found, right here on The Jay Garvin Show. Frosty the snowman was a jolly happy soul With a corncob pipe and a button nose, eyes made out of coal Jingle bells swing and jingle bells ring Snowing and blowing a bushel of fun Now the jingle hop has begun The Jay Garvin Show Home and Mortgage Talk Saturdays at 8 a.m., Sundays at 11 a.m. Here on KRDO News Radio, 105.5 FM, 1240 a.m. and 92.5 FM We're back with your home mortgage best friend, Jay Garvin's We want to pop you up Welcome back to the Jay Garvin Show. I am your host, Jay, and on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I am reading Christmas stories, and this is the conclusion of Christmas Lost and Found from James Dobson's Family Christmas Book. It involves William, who's a college student stranded in Philly, young boy David, who ends up getting an unexpected gift from William, a train set out of a toy store window, and is David's mother, Pauline, who has invited William for Christmas dinner, and now they sit and assemble the train. Finally, after three hours, the task was finished. William, the college student, sat back in a worn easy chair. All right, David, start her up, he instructed, and the young boy, David, reached for the control and pressed the button. In a flash, the train was on its way, winding around the track with an occasional whistleblow. The joy-filled expression on David's face was worth every penny William had spent on the gift. It was a feeling of immeasurable satisfaction knowing he had been able to make the boy David happy for Christmas. After the train had 15 circuits, William announced he needed to get back to the university. I've had a wonderful evening, he said. Thank you so much for making me feel at home. And the meal was delicious, Pauline. Wait, wait just a minute, David pleaded. He, he ran to his room, 
as William put on his coat and hat, he noticed that Pauline had tears in her eyes. I, I want you to know that I've been praying an entire month for a way to buy David a nice Christmas present, she whispered. Your kindness was not only a gift for David, but also for me. It was an answer to prayer. Before William could respond, David rushed back into the living room. He was holding a little white box in his arm. Mer Merry Christmas, William, he said joyfully. As William lifted the lid off the box, he was surprised to see the model train David had shown him from his dresser earlier surrounded in crumpled up tissue paper. It's, it's not as good as the one you gave me, David apologized, but at least we both got a new train for Christmas. William reached out and gave his new friend a hug. David, this is the nicest thing anyone had ever given me, he said with a tear in his eye. A certain sadness came over William as he turned to leave. He knew he might never see the Sanders again. Pauline and David thanked him for coming and for the gift. But William, he was grateful, and he had become the grateful one. As he made his way to the bus stop, he reflected on all that had happened that day. He had found more satisfaction in his new friendship than in any Christmas celebration in the past. The words of Jesus, which he had learned as a child, rang in his ears. It really was more blessed to give than to receive. As William rode the bus through the night, the meaning of the evening suddenly became clear. On Christmas Eve, like a picture coming into focus, he and his new friends had reached and each experienced a personal crisis before the encounter. Pauline had been on her knees praying desperately for a gift to offer her fatherless son. The little boy had longed for a prize that could never be his, and William had ached so much with unspeakable loneliness and despair. It was an impossible array of problems. It was as if there was no way short of a miracle that each set of needs could have been simultaneously met in such a satisfying way, but yet it happened. Could it be that a loving and compassionate Lord had been watching them on that day? He had seen their distress and heard their longingness that was driven within their heart. Did he bring them together to provide kindness to one another on Christmas Eve? Yes, murmured William to himself. He does care. He is there. Happy birthday, Jesus, he said as he entered his quiet dorm. And thank you, he added. But next year, can I please celebrate in Boise? Well, I hope you've enjoyed these stories. I hope more than anything that you enjoy Christmas. The moments of Christmas that are most dear with your family, with your loved ones. If you are not around loved ones, just pray to the Lord that he would take care of you the way William and David were taken care of. And for all of you, whether it's the birth of a nation on Christmas with General Washington and America's first patriots in my first story that I shared victory or death, America's first Christmas, or whether it's a personal crisis or a chance encounter like we experienced in my second story with William and David, Christ Jesus, our Lord, comforts us and lifts us up. I pray that you would turn towards him in the anniversary of celebrating his birthday today or tomorrow 
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Jay Garvin Show this year. I'll be back next week to close out December of 2022. You've been listening to the Jay Garvin Show. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. The proceeding was a paid program on KRDO News Radio. KRDO News Radio does not confirm nor deny the validity or accuracy of the information contained in this program. And the views expressed do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the staff and management of KRDO News Radio. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the you.